At the age of 95, Seymour Radin, Jungian analyst and my therapist of nearly 30 years, told me that he wished everyone a happy, fighting marriage. Today, in the spirit of this reflection, we interview Stephanie Hanger, licensed marriage and family therapist, and discuss the pros and cons of conflict. For instance, what does a productive fight look like as opposed to one that actually damages the relationship? What are some tools for both beginning and ending important conversations? What is mind reading and why does it happen? What's an I statement versus a you statement? Why do couples so often bring their worst qualities to bear instead of their best? And lastly, how do we know when a relationship has been damaged beyond repair? Is there truly a time to throw in the towel and call it quits? I am Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What To Do. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of Look, Just Tell Me What To Do, where myself, a marriage and family therapist, and Stephanie Hanger, a clinical licensed marriage and family therapist in San Francisco. This is going to be about how to master the art of conflict, the function of conflict in relationship, and how to resolve conflict, really the benefit of conflict and using conflict to constructive end in a relationship. The art of mastering conflict. Oh my God. <laughs> I think I may have mentioned this in our last series episode, but I said that my therapist who was in his 90s wished everyone a happy fighting marriage. And I suppose what he was talking about was the benefits of conflict and how it's not all bad. Mostly because it's really the way we differentiate ourselves and really become more of who we are is by trying to express our needs, our wants, our ideas to the people we feel the safest with, which are usually our partners. Where, where do you want to start? One of the things that I love to encourage couples I see to, to do is to bring conflict into the room with me. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would say it's probably the heartbeat of a lot of really healthy relationships, mostly because there seems to be a stigma in society that if you're fighting with somebody that you care about, there's a problem. Okay. And it's something that needs to be hidden away or tucked under the, the rug or something like this. And mm -hmm. my sense is that most people have never really seen what looks like healthy resolution. They've experienced something in their life that sounds more like, we're just going to agree to disagree. Or let's just go away and, and don't do this. Or I don't want to say anything because I don't want to upset you. Or uh -huh. I don't want you to upset me. That some, something about being upset is so intolerable for us right. that we start to avoid it mm -hmm. to, the, to the point of uh, injuring the relationship, mm -hmm. damaging the relationship to, the, to where the, it can't be repaired. Yeah. Because we're so afraid of what will happen if we engage in something intense with mm -hmm. the person we love. We're so afraid of them leaving us or attacking us or criticizing us mm -hmm. or blaming us. Mm -hmm. uh, we're afraid of judgment. We're afraid of our own judgment that we just stop trusting that it's okay to have different ideas, to have different opinions, mm -hmm. and to really believe that the beauty of having that with this person we've chosen is it's intended for us to grow. Like mm -hmm. this person is usually here bringing a counterpoint into our world because it's here for us to learn something new. It's here for us to evolve in a fuller way. And when we see our partners as enemies rather than allies in conflict, uh, then we end up getting what we expect. Mm -hmm. We end up seeing our partner as our foe mm -hmm. and somebody that we can't tolerate. Mm -hmm. And Breakups happen, divorce happens, people go away angry, people are never able to tolerate or say anything to each other again. And these are the same people that at one time 
couldn't get enough of each other, yeah. couldn't have enough sex, couldn't say I love you enough times, yeah. couldn't come up with enough reasons not to see each other. So it seems really important to be able to talk more openly with couples and people everywhere about the real art of mastering conflict. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I tell my patients that, you know, to put something in a box, to deny it, to not talk about it, to walk away from it, it's like, it's like putting, if you think about putting a, a live animal in a box, you, it yeah. would go crazy. It would fight to get out. So when you put something in a box, you actually make it stronger. And um, fighting can right. take the steam out of something. Um, right, because it brings, it brings visibility to yeah. it. it. It allows it to be seen. So I guess what we're really focusing on is not just mastering the art of conflict, but what are the benefits of conflict? Why is it good to fight with your partner? And how do you fight well so that it's good and so that you have good outcomes? Right. And, and actually see your partner in those moments as someone who's there to teach you something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Trust that you have something to teach your partner. Um, one analogy that I, I like to talk about is the volcano analogy. And um, a volcano, of course, <clears throat> as many of you know, when it spews out its lava, it can be pretty destructive. And that's, of course, analogous to the fight. But what's often happening is that new land is literally being created on the island. And in a fight, I think it's like the relationship, when people have really productive fights, it's, it's as though their relationship um, gets bigger. Yeah. And that when they come back together again, it's there's more than what they, what they started with. That's my sense. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, and even as you say that, it occurs to me that what would be really useful for, for couples and us as people in general is to sort of have a strategy for how we're going to celebrate the end of a conflict or the resolution, uh -huh. trusting that we can get to resolution. And then how are we going to sort of preempt ourselves right. with something we can look forward to? Like we're going to disagree. And every time we disagree and we kind of get through that disagreement, we're going to congratulate ourselves in some way, or we're going to celebrate something that like, wow, I know something more about you. You know something more about me. Like, we really come from these different places, mm -hmm. and that's partly what attracts us to each other, is mm -hmm. the parts of you that I'm trying to become more of, and the mm -hmm. parts of me that you're trying to become more of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a, um, I had a couple in here a few weeks back, and they were, um, they, would, they would do this thing where they would sort of like assume what the other person was thinking, <laughs> right? instead of asking. <laughs> and um, so what I made them do is I made them just tell the story of where their thought was coming from. And then they started telling each other stories about themselves that they'd never even heard. They were looking at you like, I didn't know that about you. Why didn't you tell me about that before? And it was because they hadn't stopped to really explain who they were to their partner. They hadn't, they because had, no one had asked them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. What I hear you naming is the importance of staying curious during the moment. Yeah. The importance of using curiosity as a tool mm -hmm. when you're feeling on edge or uncomfortable or um, anxious about a topic to bring up with your partner. Right. How do you slow down and ask, wait, tell me more? How do you do that? When I work with couples? Yeah. This is one of my favorite parts of working with couples is inviting them to get really uncomfortable and then learning to be comfortable with what's uncomfortable. Uh -huh. And so... For me, I find it useful to actually have a couple slow down for a moment and turn towards each other, actually look at each other mm -hmm. and both take a breath 
and then have one of them say, using an I statement of, right now I feel so angry, or I feel so bitter, or I feel so unheard, or I feel so rejected, mm-hmm. and I and I and I don't know what to do about it. Uh-huh. And then as soon as they're able to sort of use the I statement, I encourage them to then turn to their partner and say, "Tell me what happens for you when I say this." Like, oh. Actually, ask their partner mm-hmm. to respond to what they're saying, and to see if their partner can hear whatever's going on for that person—the mm-hmm. anger, the disappointment, the rejection, the the blame—and mm-hmm. for the other partner to then say, "What I hear you saying is that you feel blamed, and I want you to know I'm not blaming you for this experience or whatever it is that's going on with them." Um, but to 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 ask one partner to say what's happening and then to turn to their partner and be like, what's happening for you as I tell you this? Like really trying to stay engaged, trying to encourage the, the partner who's speaking to invite their, their other, the, the other one to stay connected to them while they're having this experience. How do people do that? Because you get, people get pretty angry. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I remember, um, this was about 15 years ago, getting... I had um I had uh I had bought groceries, cooked dinner for my then girlfriend, and then she got really upset at me for not cleaning up afterwards. And I was so furious. I had to I had to go leave I had to leave the house and go walk around the block because I just didn't know how to handle it. Um how do people deal with overwhelming intense anger in the moment like that? Because it's it sounds difficult. Well it is difficult. I mean what what you did sounds healthy. I mean, some part of you knew that you were feeling so much about it that you uh-huh. needed to give yourself some space, take a walk, uh-huh. and sort of slow down. I remember reading one time that um, when all else fails, take a walk. Yeah. Because just changing your visual perspective of something sort mm-hmm. of helps um, de-escalate whatever emotions you're feeling overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. Fresh air also is very useful. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like what you did was really quite healthy. Okay. Um, but if you can't, if you're in a situation you can't take a walk, you can't leave for whatever reason, you can't take space, e- either one of you at any moment could say, can we just slow down? Mm-hmm. Can we just slow down here? Mm-hmm. It feels like things are getting really fast. Mm-hmm. Is there some kind of physical ritual people can do, like taking their shoes off or uh, splashing water on their face? Do you think that helps if you're like in a, if you're in a, you know, the, the, the somatic piece around touching each other? Uh-huh. I mean, I, I, I encourage couples to often reach out uh-huh. and to take one another's hand and 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 look at each other and say can you feel me here like i'm i really want to understand what's going on okay i'm really curious about what's happening for you that's sweet you know and and making that um concerted effort to mm-hmm. really stay interested again the curiosity is really key here like what's happening mm-hmm. like you're so angry and i'm so confused mm-hmm. or you're so angry and i feel like you're attacking me and I'm confused or I feel attacked. What are the types of things that seem to make people angry in relationships? Or another way of asking it is what kind of conflicts do you see? Most of it comes from assumptions that we don't know how to tell each other about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every person comes from their own family system and there's lots of unspoken rules and spoken rules around um, rules of engagement, mm-hmm. what you're allowed to talk about, what you're not allowed to talk about, 
um, what's acceptable, what's shameful. You know, sex might be shameful in one family and totally explicit in the other. Mm-hmm. Money might be a source of real discomfort in one family. And in another, it's, you know, it's the topic of conversation every night at dinner. Mm-hmm. Depending on where you come from, until you can help your partner really know what your experience is about that topic or that issue or whatever, you're going to assume, because you don't know anything different, that your partner's experience is the same as yours. Mm-hmm. Until one of you explains that it's not. Mm-hmm. But it's so easy for us to assume, because that's all we've ever known, that it's totally fine to talk about money every night at dinner, <laughs> that when our partner starts acting very strange whenever money comes up, that we can't understand where that's coming from because it makes no sense to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have to actively slow down and be like, wow, I'm noticing that I feel really confused because every time money comes up, you there's this this experience I have with you that feels really uncomfortable and I and it seems like there's a lot of defense that comes up and I don't know how to bring it up and I get worried that if I bring it up it's going to cause conflict between us and it's the last thing I want I don't want to be in an experience with you where it might get really dangerous feeling and someone might start blaming or yelling at one another and then all of a sudden neither of us know how to resolve it so what happens we go away hurt we don't know how to reconnect and we're in a lot of pain mm-hmm. so how do we reverse that a little bit how do we start having these conversations as early as possible of like where did you learn about money mm-hmm. how, when's the first time you ever got paid mm-hmm. what what did money mean in your family was it was it a topic of conversation? Mm-hmm. Was it? What, did you grow up hearing that money was the source of all evil? You know, is money a source of abundance from where you come from, or is it a source of scarcity? Like these are conversations couples can have very early on if they're willing to just stay curious. Yeah, they don't. They don't. I find that they don't know each other. Yes, know, and they don't know that they don't know each other. Yes. Um, it's the Twitter patient phase that really Twitter patient. Yeah, it's a great it's a great word. Mean? I stole it from Disney. Um it's a word that came out of the movie Bambi. Oh, okay. And it happens during the spring when love is in the air and and love is blind and all you can see is sort of the excitement of the other. But there's the excitement is blinding to the reality of what else is going on. So what you're saying is I should go watch Bambi. Yes, absolutely. You know, I've never watched Bambi. Make sure you watch the Disney version, Ben. Is there more than one version? I think I think Hollywood has a very different version of Bambi. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> it's like when the deer gets revenge or something. Like <laughs> I don't know about the deer getting revenge. Bambi Transformers. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Vecchione, he's a comedian. He does a bit involving a how you kill a deer and what it means to be on your way to see someone named Bambi. <laughs> you might want to look him up. He's got a good bit on that. Anyway, so the uh, the Twitter, what you call the Twitter what? Twitter patient. Twitter patient. Twitter patient? Twitter patient. Like, oh, Twitter patient, like Twitter pa- I get it. Okay. Yeah, like Twitter pated, Twitter patient. That like, <laughs> kind of bubbly feeling, like you know, birdie feeling. Can I tell you what? Seymour is my old therapist. I quote him a lot because I can't help it. Um, he, <laughs> he said, um, he called it, I, I was, I, I think I, we were talking about the beginning of a relationship and he's like, 
was like, you know, the 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 uh, romantic the romantic phase. He's like, no, it's the bullshit phase. And he was really cynical, but like when in the beginning of a relationship, when everyone is in love and they're projecting and it's just all flowers, they're not getting to know each other at all. When I hear you say projecting, it seems important to explain what that means because we yeah. as in the therapy community, we use that word very co- comfortably and conveniently because we all have a sense of what it is, but most people don't have any idea what projection well, means. You know, I like to sling lingo because it makes me feel important. Perfect. So uh, this, is an, this is an opportunity <laughs> for you to feel important. Please go ahead. Oh, no, because oh, well, no, I know it's why I just throw those words around. No, So projection, um, in my view, means that there's some part of yourself that you are, um, let's say that you really like or really dislike, and you meet somebody who reminds you of something like some, think of the people you admire in life. Those are those people you would project. The people that you admire in life generally have qualities about yourself that you can't hold psychically. So you project it onto them. If you meet somebody who reminds you of a negative part of yourself, you might be really furious at that person. Yeah. So you're reminding me of a, a couple that I know. You're projecting where... a couple onto me. <laughs> Sorry. Just, Go ahead. just partially. Okay. Um, where one of the issues between them was, you know, for uh, for him as a child growing up, he didn't have a close relationship with one of his parents mm-hmm. and was often disappointed, often let down, often felt like he would be promised these things and then there would be no follow through. And so he became very sensitive as a person to disappointment, mm-hmm. especially in intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. And when they started dating, there were a couple of early experiences where um, they were they were going to go out somewhere, and uh, she uh, forgot to bring her wallet, um, and they needed it because she needed her ID for something, and it and it caused a problem. They couldn't get in, and um, he got so upset about it, and she was so confused, like why did you know it was a mistake? It was a simple mistake. It wasn't intentional, mm-hmm. but because he had these repetitive experiences as a young person of feeling intentionally disappointed by the people he depended on he automatically sort of assumed that what happened with her was intentional right that somehow it was a sign that she didn't really care about him Mm -hmm. or that he wasn't really important to her Mm -hmm. or what he wanted to do didn't really matter Mm -hmm. not because that's how she felt but that's because he had enough experiences early on that he got that sort of feedback and he just sort of assumed that when people did certain things, yeah. that's how he interpreted it. Yeah. And it was a real source of conflict until they were able to sort of sit down and sort of understand where that was coming from, yeah. where he learned that and why it was such a raw spot for him. Yeah, I had a, a another girlfriend maybe 10 years ago. I've had a string of successes, as you can see. <laughs> But I was making breakfast for her one morning, and I burnt the toast. And she walks into the kitchen and gets furious at me, and she says, and I'm not joking, she says, you burnt the toast on purpose. You burnt the toast just to get back at me for something. You burnt the toast just because you're mad at me, and stormed out. Like, what do you do with that? Somebody, somebody, I guess at some point in her life, burnt toast at her in the most cruel way. I don't know, Um, but that was... Well, mm-hmm. e- even then, that that I, right there seems an example of a negative projection. Yeah. Um, so, and, and with my couple, it was same. He was negatively projecting onto her uh-huh. this belief that when she forgot things or when she seemed careless, that it was intentional and it was a sign that he didn't matter and that he wasn't important to her. Right. Which is something I'm hearing with you in this person is mm-hmm. that there was an assumption she made that 
in this this act of mm-hmm. doing something, she made this assumption that you, your intention was to somehow hurt her or disappoint her. So what we're telling people to do here is that if you have a conflict that appears to be based on projection, one of the cures for that is to be curious about wh- where their reaction came from. And well, and I'm curious, even now, with that person in the, in the burnt toast, were you able to turn to her and say, please help me understand what's happening for you? Oh, of course not. <laughs> so, well, so then this is a great live example. What was happening for you? Like, do you have a sense? For me, at the yeah, time? Yeah. Well, I was absolutely confused and upset because I felt, I was like, I'm being victimized. So that was my own junk, you know. So right there, so you're, you're like even right now describing, you're playing out mm-hmm. how these things happen, you know. Mm-hmm. She's... It sounds like you felt attacked and mm-hmm. you felt confused for why she was attacking you. And then it sounds like you got really defensive. Well, yeah, I got really, de- well, my, it's one of my MOs is get to, to get defensive. So it was kind of like, it was her projection multiplied by my projection. And then you get yourself a huge. So what was your projection back then? Uh, my projection back was that you're trying to hurt my feelings. Uh-huh. So right here, here we go. Now we're your, your negative projection back on her. Mm-hmm. Learn from somewhere in your own experience in childhood. Mm-hmm is now in conflict with her negative projection. And here's an example of how conflict happens. Right. And so, you know, in, the, in these moments when the most important person to us is coming at us, how can we sort of hold ourselves, take a breath, and actually say something to ourselves like, I know this is not about me. Right. I know whatever is happening right now is not about me because my intention here is actually pure, kind. Right. Loving. And if I can hold on to that and trust that in myself, how can I then take a step back, take a breath, and mm-hmm. ask this person who I, I love and want to be with, mm-hmm. what's going on right now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is happening for you? Can you tell me? I, and uh, they might not be able to. Yeah. And the, the important part is the goodwill of slowing it down and just asking. And they might continue to. To, to unwind, mm-hmm. you know, can you, as the person who's receiving that, take a breath and keep trusting? I'm going to stand right here, and this doesn't necessarily feel good. However, I have a feeling this isn't about me. Right. I have uh, 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 several couples I've worked with where um, a substance abuse is in the in the mix. Yeah. And generally speaking, the dynamic is you've got the person who's suffering from the addiction is kind of lots of shame and guilt and the spouse feels like they've been effed over and that they've been that this has been done to them Mm -hmm. and there's no understanding of the disease model there's no understanding of you know addiction and and how it's progressive thing and that people that are under the influence and are, are just so out of control and a lot of the um healing comes about from the uh non addicted spouse understanding that they can't control nor did they have anything to do with their partners using yes. but it was it was just that's their experience and the amazing thing about addiction is that it, it takes all those dynamics and holds them up in stark relief it's really really like the, the spouse really does feel like attacked and they feel like their world is crumbling and they're so so furious at their significant other and the significant other can't really defend him or herself because they're like well yeah i did those things right you know i, mm-hmm. I you know, I, I was, you know, I, I got drunk at, you know, your sister's wedding and made a fool out of myself. I crashed the car. I, you know, I, I fell asleep in the middle of a 
uh, an important interview or something like that. Like that, that actually happened, so they can't deny it. So it's hard. It's hard to. Um, it's hard to unwind it. Hard to un- unpick it apart. Well, and even as I hear you speak about it, what I notice myself wondering is, what about the person who's not a, not using the substance? What about that person is attracted to the person using the substance? What's familiar about them? Oh, that's interesting. That's a different angle, isn't it? You know what? So, if you can trust that whoever you're attracted to, you're attracted to them for very, very important reasons. Most likely because something about them feels incredibly familiar to you. Mm-hmm. Familiar, maybe not in a way that feels good, mm-hmm. and yet familiar to you in a way that you know. And because you know how to cope and operate in those kind of relationships, mm-hmm. which that in itself feels reassuring, mm-hmm. you stay in it and continue to have an experience where you feel like it's happening to you rather than for you, except this time you chose the person. Right. So if you can stay curious about how is this person happening for me? Mm-hmm. So you're saying people are drawn to people to have like a corrective experience, like, um, uh, you know, uh, some women are seem to be drawn to like abusive men sometimes. Yeah. It's really tragic, but maybe because they were abused um, by mm-hmm. their fathers, or they saw their fathers abuse their mothers, and so they have this question about why is this? And so when they meet somebody, maybe unconsciously, I don't know how this would happen, but they sort of pick up. That this this might be an abusive person, and it kind of oh wow, this is it's like it's this is they they know that this is very interesting, but they don't know why. Well, there's a great book, The General Theory of Love. It's written by a couple of medical doctors and some psychologists, and they talk about how our earliest experiences around what felt normal in our household, whether it was physical, emotional, um, verbal abuse, mm-hmm. that we develop an early template for. That's what love looks like to us. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't know any other examples, so that must be love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, if that must be love, guess what we're looking for in a partner? <laughs> we're looking for somebody who's going to reflect a similar characteristic to what we experience as love. In order to resolve the, dis- the, the no, problem? No, because that's, that's, because what, that's, that's what we know. Well, that's Yeah, that's what we right. know. That's what feels like love to us. So, uh-huh. you know... In, a, in an abusive relationship, for example, or in a substance abuse relationship, uh-huh. I would I would guess that a person who ends up being attracted to someone who has an, uh, a substance use issue mm-hmm. most likely had somebody important in their life, a parent, a caregiver, a grandparent, somebody who was a substance user, mm-hmm. and they had a very close relationship with them, and they learned how to operate in that relationship in a way that they felt powerless because they were a child. Right. Now here they are choosing a partner. Right. In a way that recreates that powerlessness and keeps them stuck because really what they're wanting to do is grow. They're really trying to have a different relationship with Mm -hmm. someone they've chosen versus someone they didn't choose as a child. And they don't quite know how to do it because they don't know anything different. That's where couples counseling becomes incredibly valuable Mm -hmm. is you get a third person in there that helps you slow down and helps each person start to... um, look at what's attractive to them about this person. Mm-hmm. You know, if a couple who is trying to work through substance use together can start to recognize they've chosen someone who's dealing with substance use, that this person is actually an ally for them, that this person may be the person that they actually can help heal, and by them helping heal this person heal themselves and feeling powerful in the relationship, it's a win-win for everybody. Right. Is this a 
I guess we've been talking about projection. This feels like an even deeper form of projection that, like, to to that you're talking about is. Would you say that's true? You mean like template identification? How you identify what feels like in resolving old traumas? Like, yeah, you know. I mean, trauma is a tricky word right now because it it continues to expand Mm -hmm. in its meaning. Um, at one time, trauma was very specific to isolated incidents, and it was sort of um, reserved for people who had been in, you know, um, dis- natural disasters or uh, times of war or something like that. And more and more, trauma as as a term is growing in its definition to all sorts of events from, you know. Uh, witnessing people we love being hurt by each other mm-hmm. to um, being bullied as a young person in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything, I think really trauma probably qualifies as a description for anything that feels inc- incredibly scary or terrifying to us, mm-hmm. regardless of what the event is. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ideas that I like is the idea of shaping that I think trauma is like a Shaping is like one of the forces that shaped us as people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and trauma is one of those forces. Yes. It's inevitable, actually. Yeah. Everybody has some form of it. Yeah. Everybody's, everybody's shaped mm-hmm. by their histories. Um, so I guess we're looking at um, the, the different types of ways that conflict can arise, and one of them, of course, is projection. One of them is this, how do we experience love? And uh, how do, in other words, the, 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 the conflict comes from choosing a partner unconsciously for unconscious reasons. And then unconsciously playing out uh, old patterns, patterns, family yeah. dynamics, reconstellating your relationship with your dad or your mom or your brother, or your sister or your best friend or whatever from years ago or even recently. Um, uh, what are some other uh, sources of conflict that you see? And the interesting thing is, uh, Sue Johnson talks about this. You know, she's the creator of emotionally focused therapy. Um, she talks a lot about the emotional dance between couples, uh-huh. that every couple has one. We talked a little bit about this last time. Um, but that if you can help people identify the underlying deeper sort of emotional triggers that are happening for them around these really raw, let's call them trauma spots, mm-hmm. that you can start to help people. Um, come up with their own resolutions around almost any topic because i feel like conflicts um are triggered around times when we feel really confused and we we aren't actually able to track what's happening with our partner um i have a couple for example it's a very sensitive issue where um they come from very different cultures and um, they have very different ways of communicating their needs. And one of the things that happened that felt very traumatic for, for both of them was this betrayal around how money was being used. Um, they had shared accounts and they were um, investing together to buy a home. And one of them received a very large payout and bonus from a company that they were working for at the time mm-hmm. and only disclosed half of the amount to the partner and on their own took the other half and gave it to their family Mm -hmm. to help them um, because they were struggling in a, in a 
in another country where there were almost no resources available. And um, this caused a lot of pain for the partner who found out later because for them, it felt like an intentional betrayal of trust mm-hmm. um, around some goal that they believed they had together um, and only to find out later that that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. And then how do you repair trust? How do you, how do you try to understand what was happening for the other person? In this case, these two people come from cultures where one culture is very focused on collectivism and taking care of the whole and making sure everybody gets their needs met as much as possible and sharing all the resources equally. And the other culture was, which was much more individualistic that, you know, every person is for themselves and you take care of yourself. And if you have something left over and you can help great, but it's not the collective community that matters first. It's the individual. Mm -hmm. Those are, that's, those are pretty big differences in values. Right. So what you're talking about from on the one hand, you had the previous thing, which is like something specific from your childhood, but this is more about your culture, your, how things are handled from the milieu from which you arose. And the values. I mean, yeah. I, what we haven't discussed here is we can, we're assuming even in this conversation that people who are together are together and they're trying to work through something because they have enough shared values mm-hmm. around similar areas of interest or, mm-hmm. or beliefs, they can work through something. Mm-hmm. There's also the reality that some people are extremely attracted to each other, like opposites often are, mm-hmm. and their values are as different mm-hmm. as their needs and expectations. Mm-hmm. And those are harder to navigate. Yeah, Those are harder to find um, a thread through because the way we are made up, our core sense of value in the world comes from how we were told our worth was determined by our families. Mm -hmm. So an individualist versus a collectivist, those are such diverging points. Mm -hmm. Um, Theoretically, you know, the individualist could grow by becoming more collective and the the person highly collective could grow by becoming a little bit more individualist and in that way both people become fuller. But if you don't see each other as an ally and in rounding yourself out in those ways, you're going to, you're going to come to a, a stalemate where there's no work through. Yeah, I, I often tell my patients that they need a transfusion of of, of personality. Like I had, <laughs> I had this one couple that the uh, the man was incredibly concrete and sort of needed everything planned out and measured and wanted a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and a plan X and a plan Z and a plan Z point one and on and on and on. And um, his uh, wife, who was absolutely brilliant. And intuitive would sort of dismiss that as unnecessary because she could just see the solution without any preparation just go it's over there that's that's where we need to go and she'd be right a lot of the time but the problem is is that if she wasn't right she'd be way off base but Mm. if he Mm. was so concrete that they they doggedly stuck to his plan a plan b plan c they could miss the whole then it required her intuitive glimmer mm-hmm. it would destroy the whole thing so the, i had to work with them to teach them how to use those two superpowers together to form something really cool because there's certain situations that require concrete planning and there are certain situations that require um intuition yeah it's, i mean this is an excellent point you're bringing up because what we what we're what it seems to be 
a really useful resolution for couples is how to see each other as allies in mm-hmm. conflict rather than enemies. Mm-hmm. How is your burning the toast? <laughs> <laughs> at somebody. How is your burning the toast here for me in some way? What was going on that you were burning the toast? Did you put the toast in and you got distracted because you were feeling stressed out about your day and it got burned and I have no idea what what's going on for you? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do I become your ally in that moment? How do you become my ally when I'm so upset that the toast is burnt because it's the last two pieces we have and I'm starving and no one's been to the grocery store? And another point is I actually like burned toast. So here you go. And I, because my dad was weird. See? And he liked burned toast. So for me, when like I burn toast, it's not that big a deal. It's like, so I burn some toast. It's well, kind of nice, right? And it's not even that it's not that big of a deal. It's actually nostalgic for you. It yeah. connects you to somebody that you feel love. Yeah. So here you are connecting nostalgically <laughs> to something that feels like love. Again, here's burnt your toast. early template. <laughs> and your partner is flying off the handle yeah. and accusing you of trying to hurt her. Stephanie's going to bill me later for this. <laughs> Uh, um, so we're talking about, and so we got complementary opposites. That's another way. I guess that's what we're kind of talking about. Um, how to ally. I guess this episode could be called "How to Ally with Your Partner." Um, it's the art of mastering conflict. Yeah. Uh, how about boundary setting? Is our fights a way of setting boundaries? Say more. Um, what do you mean? What do I mean? Um, well, um, tell me, tell me, like, what is it about, like, having a boundary that feels safe? Well, a, a boundary can just be like if, um, I don't know, um, if it can be something basic, like, like one of my boundaries is that I I need to get enough sleep. Mm-hmm. And I cannot be woken up by another human being. Because mm-hmm. if I am woken up by another human being, my whole day is ruined and mm-hmm. I just can't function. Mm-hmm. So a healthy boundary is like, let me sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got to sleep. You can't mm-hmm. just wake me up because you're up. Um, that would be one example. Um, boundaries are super simple. They're just like lines that, you know, you can't, you cannot cross this line. This is where it stops. So what I hear you highlighting here is how to be really considerate of each other's needs. Yeah. I mean, as I'm listening to you, I'm reminded of a couple in which um, one of the points of contention between them is who takes priority. Mm-hmm. And the example I'm thinking of is they they live in a small apartment in San Francisco and he has family coming into town and where he comes from, his historical background you know, anyone, any family comes into town, you do whatever you can to host family. That's culturally what he learned. It's called hospitality. Where she comes from, which is a um, very different cultural background, it was much more formal. People didn't stay with each other. People got hotel rooms. People were just more comfortable with more distance. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> as, his, as his brother's coming into town, He's assuming mm-hmm. that, of course, his brother's going to stay at their at their place and sleep on the couch mm-hmm. because that's what they did in his family. Mm-hmm. Well, for her, that makes no sense. She's not comfortable having this guy stay on the couch. She doesn't want someone in their small apartment. It's already kind of tight. She doesn't want to have to work around somebody else. She doesn't want to have to be unnecessarily polite when she's trying to get up and go to work and get ready and mm-hmm. this and that. 
the boundary here seems that we ended up working through is how do you consider the other person first, right? So, mm-hmm. so for her, the boundary was like, Nobody, like, I don't want anyone staying in our place. Mm-hmm. For him, it was like, we can't deny family. Like, family's coming, family's staying. Right. So what they came up with was, how does he go to her and say, I'm feeling really torn. I know mm-hmm. you don't want people to be here. My brother's coming. I really want him to be able to stay here. Is there a conversation we can have where he can at least stay here like a couple days, and mm-hmm. then he goes to a hotel afterwards? Mm-hmm. Or can we make it so that he's not here during the weekdays when we're trying to get ready, but on the weekends he can come stay when it's more casual. Mm-hmm. It's it's taking the other person into consideration first and saying, hey, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. How does this land for you? Mm-hmm. What would it be like if? So in other words, it's kind of like you put the other person in charge of the discussion. Maybe, or you just really let the other person know that you care enough that you want to make sure they're included in a decision before you make it. Mm-hmm. You really want you want them to know you're you're thinking about something, and you you want them to be a part of it. You need their feedback. It's interesting. Sometimes people, when they make unilateral decisions, they don't realize they're doing it. Yeah, of course not, because they just think this is the reality. This is the way you're supposed to behave. Yeah, but well, this is the way you behave in your family. Right, and no one knows that. <laughs> right. Well, they know that, but their partner still is learning that. Is this some of the way? One of the ways you talked about in our last session, um, how people grow in relationship. One of the ways they might grow in relationship is that you start realizing that you, the how how your family system is put together, how yes. you're put together, because you suddenly have to explain it to another human being. Yes. You have to explain it, and you have to understand it yourself. So many times I sit with couples and we do genograms, which are pictorial diagrams mm-hmm. that look like family trees, essentially. Mm-hmm. And when we sit down and actually start detailing out some of the mm-hmm. specifics on each side, it's amazing how many individuals say, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize I did that in my family. Like they don't even realize it themselves until we actually put it on the wall on a piece of paper and ink. Oh yeah. And then they sort of have this aha moment of like, oh my gosh, yeah, we totally do that in my family and I never even realized it. Right, right, right. So it's not even so much of trying to help the other person understand where you're coming from. It's also just understanding where you come from. Mm -hmm. Again, that's the the self-knowledge piece. Like who am I? Where do I come from? What's what have I learned? What mm-hmm. what are the rules? What mm-hmm. are the implicit and explicit rules of engagement and resolution? Do I even know what those are? When did I see resolution? What does right. it look like? Mm-hmm. Can I do that with this person? Can I can I offer this to this person? Mm-hmm. Um, and and all of this, you know, again is something that couples can very actively pursue and engage early in the relationship mm-hmm. and just by listening to like how to even imagine these conversations by listening to this podcast or going for some counseling before they get married or or you know doing a workshop together there's so many ways for couples to start to really sort of get curious about who they are what they bring to a relationship and who their partner is and what their partner brings and how they can like you said use their their superpowers to really become a dynamic duo mm-hmm. um I was going to ask about, um, I was going to bring up the specter of codependency. Hmm. Um, and the reason is, is because I hear it so much and I hear the term misused so often. Um, people get the term 
at least in my practice and when I work, I work at the treatment center and in groups, they get the term enmeshment and codependency all tangled up. <laughs> so they often say, oh, that, those people are so codependent. And what they really mean is that they're enmeshed. And enmeshment, as you may or may not know, is not, not you, Stephanie, but you, the audience. Um, <laughs> Stephanie is a marriage and family therapist, and I know she knows this term. Means that you're so tangled up in each other that every decision that you make is contingent affects the other person, and it's difficult. If you have a super enmeshed family, like it's difficult for you to individuate as a person because everybody's there's lots of support and warmth and tidiness, but not a lot of, you know, freedom. Um, and sometimes with enmeshed couples, it's like they'll just spend every moment together, and they're just they can't. They're sort of sticky, you know. Um, and then, um, and that's a, that's enmeshment. And if you want a great example of enmeshment, just read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, all the, when the grandparents are in the bed together. Yes. And they're, did I bring this up last time? No. I hope not. Um, so they're all in the bed together in the beginning and it's because of course there has their poor, but still they're all in the same bed and the whole family is all up in each other's stuff. And, you know, they're all eating cabbage soup and things aren't really going so good for them. Right. Mm. And the way that they kind of, that Charlie individuates from the family is that grandpa Joe literally gets out of bed and says, Hey, here's a dollar, go do your thing. And, uh, and he has to separate from the group anyway. So that's my little kick on enmeshment, but codependency, uh, as I understand it, and I know there's a great book out there called Codependent No More, which um, is, goes into way more depth than I am here under what that means. But my understanding of it is to take care of someone else's needs at the expense of your own well-being. Yes. And um, so one could say that codependency is a subset or a result of enmeshment. So if you're super enmeshed with somebody, you're going to take care of that person no matter how much you suffer. I see this a lot in recovery and addiction that people will... the person suffering from addiction will like, like like let's say somebody in the group relapses and they'll call up somebody else and say, I'm, I'm drunk and I need help. They'll oftentimes drop everything to go rush over and save that person and then they'll end up getting high with them. And it, it and it's helping them at the expense of their own being. But the thing is is that codependency kind of gives people a jolt of energy. It makes them feel good. Mm -hmm. Like to help this person. It's good to help people, but if you help people at the expense of your own well-being, things don't always go so good for you. So Codependency is something I see in relationships a lot, and not just codependency, but expectations about how much you are owed, how much support you are owed by the partner, how much, it's like we're not really clear on how much we should give and how much we should not give and how much we should take care of ourselves and how much we should not take care of ourselves and when. Um, and you can see this in couples all the time. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, if, 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 you know, let's say, you know, uh, Mom, uh, you know, the mom's been uh, taking, you know, working all day long and uh, dad had the day off and, you know, the baby's upstairs crying and, and um, it's like, let's say mom's a hopeless codependent and even though she's exhausted, she'll go and take care of the kid because she doesn't want her husband to feel put out, you know, and she's, she's draining herself at, you know, she, she should really be going and doing that. He had the day off. Is that you might be following what I'm kind of getting at. Mm -hmm. So, do you see this kind of these kinds of dynamics? Yeah, I see them. Um, I see them a little bit less so with my uh, younger clients. You know, um, my younger couples, mostly because there seems to be more egalitarianism and 
the amount of work they're both doing outside the home. Mm -hmm. um, I see it really crop up once kids get involved, mm -hmm. once a couple, you know, because Marion has children, um, partly because some part of me wonders how much of this is biologically driven by gender. Mm -hmm. And uh, with women in particular, there's, you know, a hormonal instinct to um, take care of the needs of someone else to the detriment of yourself. I mean, mm -hmm. pregnancy and delivery, I mean, tremendous sacrifice in oneself in order to create life and benefit another. Mm. And so by default, that's a rather sort of codependent relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, but necessary for life to continue. Um, so it's it's an interesting issue you bring up because when you start looking at it in relationship to you know substance abuse or or work anything that seems extreme, you know people who are workaholics or and how one partner kind of caters to that to the detriment of the other partner. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think of codependency more how. One person makes excuses for somebody else's unhealthy behavior and therefore continues to support the behavior in a way that eventually destroys the relationship mm -hmm. or injures somebody in the process because mm -hmm. there's there's no there's no awareness or light being brought to something that actually isn't isn't serving or helping anybody um, and and often with couples there is this sense that somebody is having to give more of oneself than they feel like they're receiving back. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, it seems important again to bring the listener's attention back to how well you're taking care of yourself moment to moment. Because if you feel like you're giving too much, if you feel like you're giving to the point of depletion and exhaustion and there's nothing left for you, the question is, is it your partner's fault? Who's, who's really responsible for the choice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, a, in substance abuse, you see it all the time. Mothers, they'll, they're, they're, their children will relapse and they'll just give up everything. Mm -hmm. And it's terrible to watch because they're enabling them. You know, that's mm -hmm. one thing mm -hmm. that codependency does is it enables your partner, child, or whomever to keep, you know, going. And then... Um, uh, inevitably, uh, conflict arises because what happens when the person starts, let's say, setting a boundary around, well, I'm not going to help. I'm not going to give you that 10 grand mm -hmm, so you can go crash mm -hmm. into their car, mm -hmm. you know, and suddenly there's this big blow up. Um, well, and in, in that case, it's almost like, again, that's where the, the enmeshment piece comes in, where there's not enough separation of oneself from another. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of sort of this, um, this more animalistic uh, example of this that I've seen in the wild where, yeah, a mama bear, for example, will fight to her own death to protect her baby cubs so that they can get away and theoretically survive mm -hmm. and continue to, to live beyond. However, at a certain age, she runs her cubs off on her own. Once her cubs get to a certain age, hmm. depending on the topography of where they're living or what's going on, the mama bear will like push her cubs out and basically say, you need to go out there and like find your own territory and claim your own territory and mm -hmm. do your own thing. Mm -hmm. And it's something we don't see it as clearly in human behavior. You right. know, we see 
extended family staying sort of really close and connected and a mesh much longer. And it makes mm-hmm. sense when you think of the evolution of civilization in order to stay in tight clans and mm-hmm. protect each other, you know, mm-hmm. safety in numbers. But there's a fine line there around safety in numbers mm-hmm. and destruction in closeness. <laughs> Is there an ideal distance between a couple? And how would the one measure that or conceptualize it? I don't think there's any ideals. Um, this is part of the dance of being in an emotional relationship with someone else. Your, your comfort with distance or closeness has got to be somewhat proportionally relational to the other person's comfort with distance and closeness. Mm-hmm. And it's something you have to navigate together. Mm-hmm. It's something that you, um, it's, it's really a, a kind of a the beautiful part of the dance. How do you lean in when your partner pulls away? And how do you lean out when your partner pushes towards you? Allowing for both to happen, allowing there for, allowing for that movement to to actually be fun and to take you somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, just like you would on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see couples dancing their first dance at their wedding, they've spent a lot of time often going to dance classes, learning some sort of waltz, learning how to dance together, learning how to feel into each other, listen to the music. And try to keep time with each other. Mm-hmm. To me, that's that's what distance looks like between a couple. That's pretty cool, Stephanie. Um, so, have we covered most of the forms of conflict that you see in your practice? I mean, I think there's just so many. I mean, mm-hmm. there's as many forms of conflict as there are colors in a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, there's primary ones like we're talking about here today, but there's lots of nuances for it. And it seems important to remember that, that the value of conflict is it's inviting communication between mm-hmm. you and your partner. It's inviting an opportunity mm-hmm. to know yourself and the other person better. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity to ally with your partner around something and overcome it as a team. What do you do, like, like, let's say you have a couple and one of the partners says something super passive aggressive and then, um, right, which is not uncommon. No. And then the other partner, I mean, in a healthy way says, you know, what did you mean by that? Can you, can, is this is what, cause this is what I heard and they do all the healthy things. Let's say yeah. they do all the healthy things. Yeah. They did all the solutions that Stephanie Hanger, a marriage and family therapist told them to do. And then the spouse was like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Because, of course, passive aggression is a way of not owning and being accountable for the bullshit thing that you just said. Um, what does one do when the part, your partner is resistant to your intervention? And it's just like, well, no. It's a great question uh, and really applicable here because that is something that happens often. Um, passive aggressive is you're feeling angry usually at your partner, but you don't know how to communicate that clearly. Mm-hmm. So you do it in a passive way. You do it in sort of a, um, uh, like a nudge and roll sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, the only thing I can, that really comes to me in this moment as I'm imagining that situation is for the person who is the recipient of the passive aggressive, passive aggressive comment or behavior mm-hmm. to, you know, do exactly what you did, which is to say, I'm, where, whoa, where did that come from? Or what's going on? Or I'm confused. Mm-hmm. Um, and to share, like, to share with their partner, like, their curiosity. And then if their partner's like, I don't know what you're talking about, and denies it or denies, mm-hmm. denies their responsibility mm-hmm. for the partner who feels like they're the 
the source of or the, the recipient of the aggression mm-hmm. to say to the other person, okay, well, let me let me let you know what it feels like for me when you say that. Let me tell you what it's like when I hear you say something like, oh, of course you're going to go and do that with your mother instead of staying here with me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because in that way, the, if the person denies any responsibility for their feelings, which is the anger under the passiveness, right. the only thing the other person can do is to share what it's like to be the recipient of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do you do when the conflicts become too much? How do you know that you're in, you've had so many conflicts in your marriage that it's time to exit? The only time I believe that that's really true is if it, if it's physically or emotionally injuring other, physically or emotionally injuring people in the household. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? Well, physical, physical injury. Yeah, yeah, physical I mean, injuries, you know, physical abuse. People are physically attacking each other, throwing mm-hmm. things at each other, mm-hmm. trying to hurt each other, damaging mm-hmm. each other, mm-hmm. intentionally causing pain. Mm-hmm. I guess the answer is the only time that when, when it seems like there's no other choice, it's when it feels like your partner is intentionally trying to create pain for you. Okay. The intention is clearly around some amount of hurt. I see. I see. There's real, yeah, I've noticed, um, I've had couples come in and they were just mean to each other, you know? Um, and it, it, it's like no, no intervention in the world works if one person just wants to hurt the other. Yeah, and the, the Gottmans um, and the Gottman Institute talk a lot about a marriage or a relationship is over when contempt shows up between people and that seems to be sort of the the final act in the show yeah if you've gone to a place where you can't talk about what's happening for yourself or your partner can't talk about what's happening for them and even when you try to stay curious and you try to stay open and you try to tell your partner what it's like for you to be in the situation um, and there's just no responsiveness or it's just a flooding of attacking and attacking and attacking with mm-hmm. the intention of of hurting the other person mm-hmm. it's probably the the best sign mm-hmm. of the end is near all right because there's no compassion left there's no empathy there's no interest mm-hmm. there's no trust mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and everyone is literally just taking such a strong defensive position that Nobody can hear each other anymore. Right. And, and that's really sad. That's really, really painful. Mm-hmm. And I really believe every, every relationship has many, many, many opportunities to never get to that place. Yeah. Even if the couple decides they don't want to stay together, even if they really decide they have different interests or they want to go in different directions and one wants to move to Israel and the other one is never going to leave, mm-hmm. you know, Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. They can still have a really healthy ending. Right. They can have a really good friendship for right. many years after that by just being considerate of the other person's needs mm-hmm. and realizing it. It's not about you. It's not about what what's happening. It's not that you're not enough, or it's not that they don't care, or that they don't love you. It's that they, you know, that they need to go make the choices they need to make in their life, mm-hmm. and and you have to let them go. 
And you have to mm-hmm. trust that something else is out there for you. Mm-hmm. I just really want to encourage people to, to lean forward, to really lean in. And if there's any one technique, I will say, um, has been proven to really help couples connect through some intimacy during these moments of tension, mm-hmm. it's through eye contact. Oh, okay. Um, so I would love to leave the listeners with that as a resource that, you know, when you're feeling the most upset and the most ire and the most whatever toward your partner, is there any opportunity for the both of you to just stop for a moment and just set a timer and look at each other as lovingly as you can mm-hmm. through their eyes and vice versa? See the softness of their eyes. Let them see the softness into you. And remember, you're both really lovely humans that mm-hmm. are just doing your best to make it. Lovely humans. That should be the name of your podcast. <laughs> lovely humans. Well, thank you. um, you've been lovely and thank you so much for coming in again. Thank you, Ben. I, it's really enjoyable to share these ideas and put them out there. I, you know, I really, really believe that couples are the foundation of the community. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I'm going to sign off. Thank you for listening. As always, pertinent information stemming from this podcast, including links and other resources, are available in the episode notes. Should you have any questions, feedback, or wish to be a guest on my podcast, I can be reached at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com. You can also reach me by visiting my website at benjaminrusick.com. Thanks again, and remember... If your plate is full, sometimes you need to scrape a few things off to the side, and sometimes you just need a bigger plate.